humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. It's another episode of Hey Human Podcast. In this episode, I get to talk with uh, my friend, actually. Yes, he's my friend. I have one or two here and there. Mark Carson. He is a historian, a professor of history, to be exact. And I like to be exact. Uh, his specialty is the Vietnam War. I don't know why I said Vietnam. I don't think that the enunciation is on that syllable, but it's okay, it's late, and I don't care. (laughs) Vietnam, there, anyway. um, Yeah, so Mark Carson, brilliant guy. He's also a songwriter, um, so that's pretty cool. And we sat at a house I was house-sitting at, my friend Ellen's house, and we discussed the Vietnam War, and we discussed politics in general, then and now. Uh, I've titled this episode Fear and Loathing in Politics, if that gives you any kind of idea. It's a little shout out to Mr. Hunter S. Thompson, who is awesome. If you don't know who Hunter S. Thompson is, um, I suggest strongly that you go check out his oeuvre of books. He's a great writer. It's, uh, It's quite the journey to dig into one of his books. Start with Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Because there's nothing more depraved than a man on ether. But I digress. Okay, so Mark and I chattered along uh, about the Vietnam War and this and that. And as I was saying, I was house-sitting at my friend Ellen's house. And her dog Mabel, who is a lovely dog, but very noisy. Um, she She's very present in the first 10 minutes of the podcast. So just bear with. And then I tucked her away in a back room for the remainder of the episode. And... So, anyway, just wanted to point that out. The slurping you hear is Mabel the dog. She slurps loudly. <laughs> um, what else was I going to say? Oh, uh, if you haven't yet subscribed to Hey Human, please do so. You can do that on iTunes. And uh, if you don't do the iTunes situation, you can hear uh, the Hey Human podcast at, strangely, heyhumanpodcast.com. I was super duper creative with the title there. So heyhumanpodcast.com, heyhuman on iTunes. And as always, I put links about what we talked about on the heyhumanpodcast.com website. And so that's pretty cool. Uh, Mark talks about some books that I, I put up links for and, and that kind of thing. So without further ado, Mr. Mark Carson. No, not Mr. Dr. Mark Carson. Here we go. Hello, Mark. Hello. How are Susan, you? Susan, how you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well. Thanks for being here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. So, explain what you do what and do who I... you are. <laughs> well, uh, I am a professor of history. I My emphasis is on the Vietnam War, particularly the political aspects of the Vietnam War, because I, I did a lot, I've done a lot of research. Uh, <laughs> about Southern congressmen at the time, Southern members of Congress, senators, representatives, and stuff like that. Uh, And Southern congressmen were more to do with the Vietnam War than any of the others. Well, you do have a situation where a significant number of the Southern congressmen control Congress at this time because they were from these districts and they kept getting reelected and stuff like that, and they tended to gravitate towards the military committees. Mm-hmm. The armed services committees sure. and stuff like that. So you do have a whole 
you know, and, and of course the southern southerners uh, in general being a little bit more militaristic, a little bit more, mm-hmm. uh, you know, brought up on guns and all that kind of stuff. And it's always been that way. It's it has always been that way. Uh, so you do have significant figures, uh, you know, on that side of the divide, basically the hawks, uh, who were pushing for, you know, more and more build-up of military over, over time. Uh, but the thing that I found interesting that uh, even though you do have an overwhelming support for Vietnam, overwhelming support for doing more to kind of destroy the communism in Vietnam, on the other side, you do have some of the foremost doves in, in Congress being from the South. Uh, William Fulbright of Arkansas, Albert Gore of Tennessee, uh, a number of these people. Uh, Fulbright actually started holding Vietnam hearings in 1966, which is relatively early. You know, I mean, the Vietnam uh, protests, even smaller ones, started in 65, but they didn't really get started going until 67, 68. What year did we enter Vietnam? Good question. <laughs> Is that a not sure kind of answer? Uh, well, no. I mean, if you want to talk about massive numbers of troops, that's late 64, 65. Um, but if you want to talk about when we first started getting involved in Vietnam, you have to go back to 1945. Really? And even before that. Fascinating. Uh, because you have uh, Ho Chi Minh, who was had been a nationalist, and, and he, he was a communist, but he had been a nationalist in trying to basically... Uh, separate, or at least uh, uh, allow his country to become independent from, you know, at the time it was French Indochina. Uh, During World War II, he would help uh, downed American pilots over China, and what would happen was he would go into China, which is next door, and he would help rescue these down pilots. Ho Chi Minh did. Ho Chi Minh. They didn't talk about that yeah. much in history class. And you had that, <laughs> yeah, you had them, you had him helping some of these American pilots. And of course, they're, at, at this time, French Indochina is being occupied by the Japanese. Uh, and the French is still there with the administration, the kind of the Vichy kind of uh, collaborationist uh, regime. So you have Ho Chi Minh. Um, rescuing these downed pilots. In return, the Americans helped train Ho Chi Minh's forces. Gee, what an ironic twist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you have when the so you have the OSS, which is the forerunner to the CIA, helping train Ho's for, Ho's forces. And as that it was actually a point at which Ho got sick and he was near death and the Americans helped group help uh, uh, bring it back to bring home. It back. Bring back to health. Do you think that Ho Chi Minh's girlfriends wore T-shirts that said "Hose Hose"? <laughs> yes. Is that documented? Fact, yes, that is. Yeah, it was a big documentary. Hose Hose, Hose up for Hose Hose. <laughs> anyway, go on. So this is this kind of podcast. <laughs> it's uh, in everything. <laughs> no, uh, and so what what occurred was um, in 1945 when the war was over and they and, and with Hose help. Uh, the Allies expelled expelled the Japanese from uh, French Indochina. Mm-hmm. Ho Chi Minh declared independence using words from the Declaration of Independence. They really? Ameri- yeah, they had Americans on podium as he was declaring independence, and 
Uh, it is said that there are... Sorry, hold on for a second. It's all right. Let's get it. Mabel is drinking <laughs> deeply from... I'm house-sitting right now, and so Mabel the dog, who is a giant... Well, she's got to be part... I don't know. She looks black and tan, and... Anyway, she just drank a lot of water. <laughs> Thanks, Mabes. Good to see you, girl. Yeah. She's not sure what to make it. Anyway, sorry. Don't uh, interrupt. So, no... When, on the podium, when he said we hold these truths to be self-evident of all men are created equal, apparently there was a flyover of American jets. Whoa! Yeah, it, that's what it's, it, it was. It might. It was probably by accident. But so you have Americans on the podium. You have a have have a, a Vietnamese leader declaring in, declaring independence using the words of the Declaration Whoa, Declaration of why, Independence. Why do we not know about this? We, well, I mean, I know you know about this, but I recall in history class hearing nothing of this. I mean, granted, I was a little stoned <laughs> most of the that time. Might, the problem is, the problem is uh, you know, it, in, in high school history classes, which I've, I've taught, if you're teaching the entirety of American history, by the time the semester's over, you you barely scratch, you yeah. scratch the surface on yeah. Vietnam or anything else. Yeah. And, you know, this is not really a knock against... I mean, and, and there are very reputable uh, uh, schools that teach history. Sure. But history is often thought of in, uh, as an afterthought. And, you know, you have the high school wrestling coach teaching history. And sure. that they might no, not necessarily... Yeah. They might not necessarily be bad teachers... But that's not their emphasis, you know. And so, so you you often uh, uh, kids often get rather you know short shrift on, on these types of issues because you know they don't know about them. They didn't read enough about them. They read enough of the textbook or something like that. They didn't actually do research to right. be able to find out. But I mean, if you read kind of uh, there's a, a America, America's longest war, which is now a, a, a title that that. that she, that isn't actually true because America's longest war was in Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, but America's Again, longest a war. good example of us providing weaponry and, and right. training, and then going, "Just kidding, guys! Right. We're coming for you." <laughs> but you know how you had uh, America's longest war by George Herring, who's, who's one of the kind of the deans of of, of historians on Vietnam. You know, he writes kind of the, the textbook on Vietnam. Uh-huh. That's one of the first things they talk about. Talk yeah. About the, so it's readily available. It's just. You know, it's it's not really discussed as much. It really wasn't discussed as much. Right. But Americans, for the longest time, supported. Uh, I'm so sorry. I'm, sorry. I'm gonna stop for a second. Okay. okay. Sorry about that little interlude. That's all right. I can't remember where we were. Um. <laughs> uh, I think we were talking about um. Oh, so the the flyby. It's your armpit. Um. The flyby of right, right, yeah. Uh, well, I see Americans uh, actually supported Ho Chi Minh because uh, he was the one that helped them, helped them during the war, and it was actually really common knowledge, or at least if they looked uh, hard enough, to, they they would know that Ho, Ho Chi Minh had been a communist for a long time. He was actually at Vers- the the Versailles uh, uh, negotiations in 1919 in France. Did they just pretend like they didn't know, or they really didn't? Well, they needed his help. They needed yeah, his help to help fight line. the Japanese yeah. okay, uh, uh, in, in, in uh, Indochina. So they got out, out of there. But then you have, between 45 and 47, you have the kind of buildup of animosity between the Soviets and the United States, and you have the Cold War beginning. That was when his communism started to, to at least they started to talk more about his communism. And they're like, okay, well... 
we can't really support him because he's communist. And the French, oh, there's another, there's other parts of it that 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 I left out, which are very important actually. There were all these all these um, negotiations about what would happen with Indochina. The French wanted it back, uh, and the uh, initially Roosevelt said, "No, they've been." That, you know they've been uh, subjugating these people for a long time. The French, yeah. Mm-hmm. So they don't they don't get it back, and and with and then of course Roosevelt died. Truman coming in very new to all this stuff. Uh, Churchill made a significant play to bring the French back in because basically if they took the French out of their out of the colonies in Asia, what's going to happen with the British? So he's a very much a colonialist anyway, and so you have with American help, the French being brought back in. <laughs> At the same time, you have you have you know I'm talking about Ho being a communist. Ho Chi Minh actually sent a few letters to Truman around that time, saying that you know I'll I'll, I'll help you know if you help me. Basically, the Americans are the helping the French come back into into Indochina. Now, why did the Americans want France to, to do that? Just because now suddenly the French are going to be our allies for the next. Well, war. you also have. It's very. It gets very complicated because the, the Americans wanted to set up. And they were in the process of trying to set up something like NATO, which eventually became NATO. NATO, and so they wanted. And and you have to understand, the Soviets were moving into to eastern Germany, and there was a fear that they would start moving into the western part of Germany too. France. France's economy was all screwed up after the war and all that kind of sure. stuff, and so they wanted to support France, and France kind of blackmailed them, basically saying, if, "Blackmailed whom?" Blackmailed the United States, oh, okay. mm-hmm. saying, "If you want, you know, if you want us to remain non-communist, if you want us to remain viable, we're going to need a colony in Indochina." And so, between the negotiations of that, between Churchill insisting that everyone, all these European countries, needed to get their Asian colonies back and all that kind of stuff. The Americans aided the French into getting back into Indochina. Whoa! So you have that. So this you, is what happens when you give children the game Risk. <laughs> <laughs> they grow you up know, and they. All t- my professors have brought that up. Yes, <laughs> for, for real. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, no, I mean, so anyway, and of course, Ho Chi Minh resisted this. So you have. I imagine he did. Yes, so you had the French Indochina War that went between 1946 and 1954. And in the end, uh, with you know, you have a mechanized army against Ho Chi Minh's forces that didn't have very many supplies. They started to get some supplies from the Soviets, but at that point, not as much, not so much. But as it went on, uh, you have. You know the Soviets starting to supply and and getting some some stuff from China as well, communist China as well, uh, started to supply uh, uh, Ho Chi Minh. But the Americans started to basically foot the bill for this war because the Americans did wanted France for NATO. The Americans wanted France to be a viable country, and every time. Uh, they had these negotiations. France kept saying, "Well, you know, we, in order for us to be viable, we need to have our colony. So you need to help us." So by 1954, America was funding 
the French side of the French Indochina War about 75% of the... Why did America give a crap's ass that any other country was communist? Why did they care? Well, because you do have... I mean, honestly, there is a very real threat from the Soviet Union. At this point. At this point. Because, you know, you had the, the war was just over, and you have, you have both, at the end of the war, both the Western democracies and the Soviet Union, the Western democracies on the West and the Soviet Union from the East all descending upon Germany. All of the countries that the Soviet Union liberated from communism, I mean, from, from Hitler, became communist. Ah, and I'll so, save you if you become a communist. Yeah, you know, well, by force, usually. Yeah. And, and so... And so the Americans and the French and the British were concerned that the Soviet Union wouldn't stop with Eastern Europe and would start to move into Western parts. So Russia comes in and says, we'll save you from this jackass Hitler, and then, but we do it by being a jackass ourselves. So they basically well, went from the frying pan to the fire. For the most part, yeah. A lot of those, a lot of those Eastern European countries you know, got liberated from Hitler and a few years later became part... Yeah. Of the Warsaw Pact be- right. became part of it. And, and a lot of times it was because the Soviet troops wouldn't leave. They wouldn't, you know, they kept them there. So you have that happening. And, and, and so there's a very real concern that communism would be spread, you know. And then you have, I mean, the whole beginnings, of, I could go into the whole beginnings of the, of the Cold War, but I mean, there is a real concern that the Soviet Union was expans- expanding into as many places as they could. And, and, and in fact, they were trying. To expand into a lot of different places, and you know, the part of the whole kind of doctrine, doctrine of communism is, is kind of world revolution, the fomenting of world revolutions. But not all of it was directed from the, from the Soviet Union. You have you have Ho Chi Minh being a lot of a, a communist, but a complex character, a significant nationalist, wanting to nationalize, wanting wanting his country to be independent, and he'd been wanting that since the. 19- Explain yeah, the difference between a nationalist and a communist. Okay. And a socio- socialist, those laws were there. Well, I mean, you know, if somebody's a nationalist, somebody wants, to, uh, you know, especially with regards to Vietnam, and you can go back even further with Vietnam. Vietnam has been on, uh, under the yoke of foreigners for thousands of years, literally, China for about a thousand years. And at every point, and it took, sometimes it took them forever. But the Vietnamese always threw out the foreigners, always. They threw out China. the China was there for nearly a thousand years. They threw them out. The French were out, the French were there, and eventually they threw them out in 1954. So you do have Ho Chi Minh as being this person who was fighting for his people, basically saying, "We don't want the foreigners to to to, to uh, govern us. We want to govern ourselves." Now. Mixed with that is his belief in communism. So if the government that was going to result from what he was doing was communist, but not necessarily 100% tied to the Soviet Union. In fact, the Soviet Union and, and Ho Chi Minh, he was, he was, uh, Ho was playing the Chinese and the Soviets who had this kind of rivalry going on against each other so we can get the most things. And so basically they, the Soviets weren't, were supporting but not controlling what was going on. So he was Quite Ho Chi Minh. Smart. Yeah, Ho Chi Minh was basically someone who wanted the independence of Vietnam. In 1945, if the United uh, 46, if the United States had gone in and helped Ho Chi Minh and tried to block the French, you'd have you'd have Vietnam being communist. 
but not necessarily aligned with, with the Soviet bloc. Okay. And so you have that, and that's, that's the whole thing, but they saw it all through the lens of fighting communism because of the threat of the Soviets in particular. Sure. So they didn't see, they didn't, they basically thought that Ho was a puppet of, you know, the Soviets or the Chinese or both of them. You know, and so, and all this is going on with a lot of, obviously, a lot of the drama going on when all of Eastern Europe is becoming communist. And so they're, they see it all through one, through the whole idea of containment with they, the Americans. Which they, the Americans, yeah. sorry. It's okay, uh, it starts getting confusing. I know, it, it, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is. But I mean, the, Amer- the Americans saw Vietnam through the lens of this whole kind of con- anti communist struggle, you know. So, their fight to keep communism contained in Asia it was the same to them as keeping communism contained in Europe. And they were all going on at the same so time. So was that just sort of... I mean, was America really, really concerned that America was going to go communism? I know there sure is tons of rhetoric of fear, but that's always used in politics. Well... But what's, what were the... I mean, in reality, that's does. just a, a fear-mongering technique, right? Well, I mean, you see, the, 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 it, in part it was fear, in part it was based on a real concern, you know. Uh, because the, they didn't want Russia to have more, get more and more yes. land and more and more power. Yes. And, and they didn't know where they were going to stop. Yeah, okay. Um, but, you, but you also have like, okay, let, let, let's go to the, the basic, uh, what's generally thought of as the beginning of the American involvement in the Cold War. You have Greece and Turkey. Greece and Turkey had some left-wing revolutions going on in 1946, 47. Okay, they were uh, Britain is used was usually the protector of Greece and Turkey, but Britain was basically bankrupt at the time. Sure. So they asked the United States to come in and help, especially since there were these these revolutions that were going on, or at least the beginnings of these revolutions or stirrings going on, and left leaning, so they thought it might be communist. So Truman decided to do this. Decided they wanted to do this, but he needed to convince the American people to do it. He started talking to members of Congress, and uh, his uh, his Secretary of State started talking to members of Congress and all that kind of stuff. And some one member of Congress from the South basically said, "The only way, the only way that you're going to get the Americans to go be go uh, to back giving aid to Greece and Turkey is to scare the hell out of the American people." That's literally what he said, and so. They wrote a speech, and he delivered this speech. Truman delivered this speech before a joint session of Congress and on radio, basically saying that America uh, had to choose between two ways of life, between freedom and, and or, or communism, for the most part. Wow. And yeah. now that rhetoric is freedom and terrorism, yeah, of course. Yeah. And so you have Truman actually going well beyond... He didn't really want to scare them as much as he did, but he did. But then, of course, you have all you have that going on. You had the loss of China in 1949, so you have everybody saying, "Okay, oh, China's now gone." You know, there must be communists in our midst. And then you have the whole McCarthyism thing. So it, it started to build upon itself. You know. Meanwhile, you have the whole French Indochina War going on. That you know, and so that's thought of as the struggle between the French and the communists. You know, uh, as opposed because to that fed into the rhetoric. Yeah, as as opposed to the French who were colo- you know, who were colo- who were colonial oppressors and the nationalist forces of Ho Chi Minh who happened to be communists. 
Yeah. So so that you know America wanted to contain communism as much, and it's all part of the whole containment strategy. But the strategy wasn't significantly as well. They had an original framework to try to try to base. Okay, we're going to contain communism where it, where it appears. But and they had other types of uh, national security security council documents and stuff like that that tried to guide it. But it became a bit myopic because we started to get involved in almost everywhere and started to spread ourselves thin. And you know, in the, in in the case of Vietnam, we really kind of misjudged who we were dealing with. Not that America ever lost any battles in any of the Vietnam War, but it didn't matter. It's the same. There's a very lots of parallels between the Vietnam War and the American Revolution. The Americans actually did win some battles, but the Americans basically lasted as long as they could, and eventually the British got tired. And that's exactly what happened in Vietnam. Really? Yeah. The American. We lost a lot of lives in Vietnam. Did we, we lost a lot of lives in Vietnam. We never lost any of the battles. Really? Yeah. We lost. And what was interesting is. Uh, 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 Bonwin Yap, who was the, the main general, the main Vietnamese general, was talking to American officials at the, near the end of the war. Uh, one of the military officials was talking to Yap and said, basically, you know, uh, I want you to understand that we never lost any of the battles in this war. And then Yap said, that's, that's very true. It's also irrelevant. Because basically, the Viet, uh, well, eventually Viet Cong forces and the North Vietnamese forces didn't have to win. They just had to outlast the Americans and wait for the Americans to get tired of what was going on and and pull out. Yeah, which is what they did. Which is what they did. Yeah. Yeah. So. So how did they? How did? So we pull out of Vietnam, which to the delight of many Americans, the hippie side, I suppose. Right? Yes. Well, <laughs> by the time. By yeah. the time we were pulling out, there were like seventy-one percent of Americans who thought it had been a mistake, mistake to go in. Yeah. So it was. It had pretty much turned around. Yeah. Yeah. So. As war often when people start yeah. losing their own sons and daughters, yeah. I think yeah. that although I guess daughters probably weren't as many daughters at that point. You, you did have some nurses. You yeah. Had, they have some nurses who were. But not like now. No, no, no. It's not. No, it didn't have the. No. Uh, significant presence uh, in the military of women. Uh, that they do now. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, and, and, you know, it's so much different now because the, the people that are fighting the wars now, only a small percentage of the population, uh, uh, and also, you know, they're volunteer before you had the draft. And so you had, you know, maybe widespread people, widespread people protesting when it looked like America was going to lose the war, or there's so many body bags coming back and stuff like that, now you have a kind of a volunteer army. Yeah. So most Americans' families don't are experiencing. You know, only the only those families that are military families that actually have volunteered to do this. Yeah. So it's quite different now. Yeah. yeah. I don't think it lessens the blow. <laughs> no, 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 not um, at all, not at all. But I mean, what I'm saying as far as as far as like massive protests yes. against against a, a military involvement. I also think that. We unfortunately are quite lazy and have other things that interest us, like video games and iPhones. And, <laughs> yes. I mean, I, it sounds no, it's safe, true. But it's I think true. it's true. Technology has basically created a more zombie 
we, I, you know, there's always jokes about, oh, be prepared for the zombie apocalypse. Right. And I think, wait, aren't we in the zombie apocalypse <laughs> right now? Did well, I that, miss something? <laughs> I totally, I totally get it. I mean, there's, there's, uh, um, I mean, uh, you, there's always been this kind of simplistic attitude towards anything in American foreign policy. There's always been this kind of simplistic, we're going to go get the bad guys and all that kind of stuff. Where the, where the realities are a lot more complex. Uh, and it's just, it, it, as people, when you have an electorate that is significantly not educated on Foreign policy, foreign policy in particular. Yeah. You don't, you don't, you know how you, how uh, how are they going to cho- choose people who are savvy at this kind of stuff? Who who who, who are? Well, um, I think politicians rely on the fact that oh, most they Americans certainly don't do. know anything except for what they're fed. They certainly do. They yeah. certainly they all the, a, a significant number of, of politicians. They they well, I mean. Let's let's talk about the elephant in the room. Donald Trump is basically knows nothing, very little about foreign policy, very little about American history, very little about any of that. It's basically, okay, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to find... Not quotes statistics that are completely erroneous. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to find some people to, to who are going to do the job for me. Yeah, he'll hire them out. He'll hire them out. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the only problem... Well, there's many problems, but the, the <laughs> one of, to me, one of the main problems is if you have an orator... I mean, it's... I think this is where he gets his comparisons to Hitler sometimes, is that, although I think Hitler was actually quite a bright man. He was, yeah. significantly. Yeah, I think he was He was up there on the scale. I wouldn't... Anyway, <laughs> that being said, when you are speaking to a populace and you are intentionally misrepresenting, misquoting, misdirecting, I don't understand how that's not a crime, first of all. I know it's free speech, but it's not free speech when it incites riots. Yes, but you see... There's a fine line between free, street, free speech and, and inciting, inciting riots. Inciting riot, yeah. yeah you can. And yeah, calling yeah. for murder. I mean, they've, they've, they've thrown out, you know, put Hillary in front of a fire line. Regardless of your politic, left or right, that's inappropriate. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I'm, the thing about conventions, the whole conventions, you're always going to have the crazies out there. I know. You know, on, is, on both sides, it's, it's going to incredible you can, theater. You can, it, it is is actually just theater, and, and and since there's now no kind of drama, when drama, because usually, since I don't know '76, there was actually some sort of drama with regards to who was going to be the nominee on the Republican side, because it was between Nixon and Ford. But basically. You don't have any drama, so it's basically an infomercial. It's a commercial for the sure. for, for the party. Yeah. So all the all the people, all the crazies, come out. Yeah. You know, to be on television, to, to wave sure. their banners, to yeah. dance around. To but you and I are bright. We understand this, and I'm not dissing people that aren't bright. I'm just yeah. saying that it's very manipulative of people that don't know better, mm-hmm. and it's to me that's completely the antithesis of what America in quotes should stand for. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I think. But it's not a it, to me. It's not a new problem. It's not. I, mean, it's I know. Just, I maybe understand. it's a, maybe it's a worse problem now. But I don't think it's any worse. I think it's just better televised. Yeah. I think people are the same as they've I, always been. And we're I very think young. The, I think the the great difference, though. I mean, you have somebody like Richard Nixon was talking about law and order. Richard Nixon was talking about various things. He had secret war, secret plan to end the war, which he ended up not having. Nixon knew he was lying. 
I don't often think that Donald Donald Trump tells so many lies. I think that at the point of when he speaks, and I've read a lot about this, at the point of when he speaks, he actually believes whatever it is he's saying, even if later he's going to contradict himself. Well, that's the best way to lie, isn't it? Yeah. If to actually believe what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, that's a tactical... I mean, I mean, if somebody like, even going back to Hitler, somebody like Hitler talked about the big lie. You keep saying it over and over again and people will believe Absolutely. it. Absolutely. But he knew it was a lie. Yeah. I think Donald Trump is so megalomaniacal that he Say thinks, that five times really fast. <laughs> I know. <laughs> that he actually, at the point he is saying something, he believes it. Yeah. So he's able to convince everyone. And then ten minutes later, he's like, ah, you know. Because it's all about him. It's the all moment. about the theater. It's all yeah. about the yeah. moment. Yeah. 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 I, I joke with some of my friends that uh, <laughs> that he's on the payroll of the Democrats because, <laughs> I mean, they're like, we'll give you like $10 million to just be as insane as humanly possible, you know? Well, it, it's, it's Or maybe like, some, maybe, you know, Gates paid up with well, to bring down the system or something. What was funny is that there's, it's not a great movie, but it, but it's a great premise, I thought. There was a movie, Bullworth, that was... I love that, that movie! Yeah, Did you know Warren Beatty wrote that movie? Yeah, yeah, he wrote Oh, God, I, what an incredible movie. I, I, it, it is a good movie. I've seen it enough times. I used to play it for my government classes, and... and they totally missed the point because it was too much about race and sex yeah, and everything else. Sure. And that was just, and drugs. And Haley Berry. And, and Haley Berry. Berry. So, it is a very good But movie. I mean, it was basically about campaign finance reform, which the whole thing was about that, about, about the, the too much money in politics. But the point about, the point I was making is, is it's like Bullworth started out by saying, okay, look, so I'm, I'm, I'm disillusioned with the whole thing, so I might as well tell the truth. So he keeps telling the truth and the more outrageous he gets, the more people start to hone in on him. Now that sounds very familiar to me it, 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 with the Trump campaign because Trump had no clue that he was going to get this far. I know. He had no idea. You could kind of see it in his eyes yeah. when he's talking. Yeah, I mean, it's like, <laughs> you know, with, with Trump, everything, everything is, is, is a competition and if he wins... You know, it makes him stronger. I mean, it was, it was that with women. He always talks about the yeah, role of women. Sure. He's had he talks always talks about business. Sure. It's all about the competition, and it's all about that. And so he started out by saying, "Okay, what if I say some crazy shit? <laughs> what if I? I mean, it, it it does happen to be what he believes about. You know, is uh, it though? Sometimes yes. I wonder. Well, I've heard. I've, I, you know, there's so much that go on on campaign. You know, don't know what's true, but I yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I heard John Stewart say the other night they were quoting from things that Trump said over the years. Over the years, okay. And one yeah. of the things that Trump said that at one point he said, um, "I have black people counting my money right now, now, and I'm not really comfortable with that. I'd I rather have, that. I I'd rather that. have people counting my money that wear yarmulkes all day." Yeah, the Jews. Yeah, right. I remember. He so said it's that. like, yeah. so, and, and honestly. Um, but it, he's like the the blowhard drunk guy at a party at, in the Hamptons. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yes. That's what he reminds me of. The guy that's sort of walking around, spilling his liquor a little bit, grabbing the ass of the hot chick that walks by, and yeah. he's like, oh, I've got this great joke about a Jew and a, you know, a priest yeah. and a blah. You know, he's like that guy. He is that guy. But without the being drunk off his ass, oh my gosh, I'm sure he was drunk off his ass a bunch of times at those parties. But, but he's... He came from privilege. He was that, you know, overserved, overprivileged guy. Yeah, which is weird because the, the anti-Hillary people scream about how she comes from privilege. 
it's just this weird myopic thing that happens in politics that it's like let me just take my brain out and then I can pick a side well see to me the most insidious thing about American politics is basically and and I don't think I I don't think this election is going to come down to that but it may it's getting closer now Um, you have at least a year's worth of television and radio and every other type of media basically just pouring on what's going on in the campaign. You hear all these snippets and shit, stuff like that. You, people in the battleground states especially see these commercials all the time coming on about one side or another and all that kind of stuff. And eventually, in a lot of American elections, it comes down to 1% to, the one to, one to 2 of the people who have heard all this stuff and still have not made up their minds, yet they still bother to vote. In 2004, I was—I remember, and it looked like George W. Bush was going to lose because he was about 40-something percent, and it looked like Kerry was, you know, who was a terrible candidate, was looked like he was gaining, or it looked like he was, you know, and I remember having lunch with friends of mine saying, okay, wow, I wonder what a Kerry administration is going to be like. Then I started, when I, when I was driving somewhere that morning of election day, I was, they, the heads, or at least the afternoon, they were talking about some exit polling, or at least they were talking about what people were saying. And I kind of thought that Kerry was in trouble when I heard some of the, heard some of the answers of this exit, exit poll. And one of the things that they, they said that they, some people said that they, because they uh, didn't vote against, didn't vote for Kerry because he was too rich. Interesting. And George W. Bush is from oil. Yeah, from of oil. course. And so, yeah. so it's all about perception. It's it not necessarily to. about the reality of, sure. all, of all of it. And so that's. And once again, and in that election, it was fifty-one forty-nine. Yeah. So it's to the one to two. It scares me because a lot of people who I consider bright people are saying to me, "I'm not going to vote because I have no choice." Which, man, that just it upsets me. Yeah. It does. It upsets me. Well, the th- the problem is, well, this... I know everyone. It's it's an American right. You can yeah. take it or leave it, but it there's something fundamental about that. No, I agree. I agree. I mean, um, the problem is that the American political system has become this kind of popularity contest and, and, and based on hearsay. And yeah, based but even on the popular vote about, doesn't necessarily win, which is yeah, also confusing. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that's, that's the Founding Fathers who, honestly, the Founding Fathers really, really distrusted the average American person. And that's why they they could made up some this tortured logic of the electoral college they 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 did not trust the people all and look at who these people were who were the who were the founding fathers they were these plantation owners there were these the there were these merchants they were these people nobody was poor nobody was middle class all these people were the up were the Upper cream crust. of the crop yeah, of course of and bright and, and the brightest mm-hmm. the brightest the best and the brightest they're of America. poets and writers and yeah. intellects and, and yeah. but rich yeah. significantly sure. and they for the most part wanted to put in protections against what they talk about you know the the problem of faction or the problem of well like a, an individual an individual who might who might become a king or a dictator or all this kind of stuff. And so they tried to, they were scared of the people. They were scared of the average people. So they put in something like the Electoral College, mm-hmm. which is just a, a strange kind of system. Yeah, it is. Because now you have what? Pennsylvania, Ohio, Florida, uh, maybe Iowa, 
um, and a few other states. And you're not going to see, you have, it's a 50 state election, but you're going to see the, the presidential candidates in 10 states most of the time. Mm-hmm. The rest of the states are just like, okay. Whatever, yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating to me. All right, right let's get back to Vietnam. Okay. <laughs> it's so easy to talk about what's going on right now, okay. but let's get back to Vietnam. So, right. I read it, and this is sort of not about politics. Well, maybe it is about politics. Um, I read an article yesterday that said that 75%-ish of American forces fighting, like of the people actually doing the groundwork, um, were getting heroin supplied to them. Do you know anything about this? Now? Do you know anything about it? No, no. Back when they were fighting, they would be sent heroin and cigarettes and Playboys, you know, or whatever. They were being sent cigarettes and Playboys, and Bob Hope came down every now and then. Yeah. Uh, it, I just wondered, it's like, got, get them hyped up so they can Drug go. use in Vietnam actually started to spike the latter years of what was, what was uh, the 70 through the 73, uh, because they were pulling forces out. American forces out, so there was no real point to the war. Amer- you know, it, American Americans were continually dwindling, and it was really hard to fight a war when you didn't when you had so few forces. They were trying to rely on the South Vietnamese, who were basically corrupt and incompetent, uh, the armies, and so a lot of the frustration led to a significant spike in drug use. Now, were they being supplied heroin? I've never really heard that. Okay, uh, but, just- but that's not to say that they hadn't been. You know, I mean, you know, you have to kind of put yourself in the mindset of the 60s. and when, Of course. You know, as far as, you know, you have these problems, take these pills or whatever it is. But sure. there was a lot of alcohol. There was a lot of weed. There was yeah. a lot of, there was a lot of access. And especially, you know, uh, I think there was a significant, in certain parts of, certain parts of Vietnam, a significant growth of opium. Yeah, of the poppy plants. That makes sense. So, so you do have uh, uh, a ready supply of mm-hmm. of you know uh, opiates, some sort of some sort of uh, drugs that would that soldiers could get. Access I wasn't to. sure if it maybe was some sort of idea. I don't think it was that... a part of. I, I've never read that there was an actually part of an, a, 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 a you know military program to give them that type them up to bring them in there. Yeah. Did the, did the, did a lot did a number of the soldiers? Well, heroin, I think, is a downer, isn't it? Yeah, I yeah, I'm not enough mm-hmm. of a drug person to know, yeah, but sure. yeah, you would think that they would give them some amphetamines or something yeah. like that that to bring them, hype them That's up. Interesting. I'm All not right, so saying I'm, I'm not sorry. saying it didn't happen. I just yeah. I just don't know about yeah. that. Take us through uh, our stepping in and and sort of the process of what happened, and then our disentanglement. Well, why? I mean, what? Okay. So you have, uh, the, the, to try to shorten it as much as possible, you have, okay, this, the, the French losing at the end of Bien Phu in, in 1954, uh, and eventually that was the beginnings of their leaving, leaving Indochina. So you have this conference, this Geneva conference going on, uh, and there was uh, Ho Chi Minh, and there were the Chinese, and there were, there were a number of number of groups that were involved in this conference to try and figure out what was gonna they were gonna do. Now Ho Chi Minh of course had won the war and so he wanted independence for Vietnam. And the Americans kinda came in but they didn't really participate, but they kinda moved behind the scenes and worked things and, and China wanted to become a player on the net, on the international stage, 
so they didn't want to be too hard on the, on the Europeans and everything else. And so what they started, what they came up with was this division of Vietnam, North and South. Uh, it was supposed to be temporary, 1954. And so 1956, there were supposed to be these national national elections, Vietnam-wide elections, and they were going to choose a leader. And of course, it was obvious it was going to be Ho Chi Minh because he was the most popular figure. Well, in the meantime, I mean, and, that, and that was kind of helped, like behind the scenes, engineered, uh, convinced China through, and Americans, Americans kind of helped have that. And of course, at that point, Americans created the nation of South Vietnam. They chose the leaders. They, they chose the leader. They gave them enormous amounts of money. In fact, in 1956, John F. Kennedy, Senator John F. Kennedy was talking about Vietnam being South Vietnam being our, our child, our offspring. Um, and we did this because we yeah, the communists yeah communists. under the guise of communists. So we yeah. we gave them all. So North Korea now suddenly North is the communists. Yeah. I mean, it's not Korea. I yeah. don't know why I said Korea. North Vietnam. Is now the communist side, South Vietnam. Is is the non-communist side. You notice I didn't say democracy. Yeah. Uh, they chose, it's not a democracy. That would be a... Uh, they, they, under the guise of it being a democracy, they, they, they not only, you know, propped up the... I mean, created the nation of South Vietnam. They chose the first leader, uh, Ziem. Ngo did Ziem, D-I-M, Ziem. Uh, who was... He was a Catholic in a country that was 85% Buddhist. He was. He didn't wear traditional Vietnamese garb. He wore these white suit, white linen suits. He was Westernized. Yeah. And and he was not a believer in democracy. He was more kind of like a Chinese Mandarin, where to have his whole, whole family was dealing with all all kinds of stuff. Started persecuting people, who you know. And so that's out of that became this, this the Southern Vietnamese intellectuals who did not like ZM created the National Liberation Front, which eventually became known as the Viet Cong. So they they were tied a little bit to Ho Chi Minh, but they really wanted ZM out. So you have all that going on. And throughout the 50s, Americans propping up, they, they bring uh, ZM to America, call them the you know George Washington of South Vietnam and all that kind of stuff, and all this under the guise of... Uh, you know, so basically, after the French... Show them the example of what would happen when you back, when you when you go against these uh, the Vietnamese and they failed miserably. The Americans thought they could do it better. How American of them? Yes, and what it's all about, you know, it's it, there's a lot of a, there's a great book. Lauren Barrett's Backfire starts talking about American culture and how we thought we could do it better. Our our ingenuity was better. Our, our technology is better, and all that kind of stuff. So we're we're going to be able to do it better. You know, and after all, it was the French. Um, <laughs> That's those are the attitudes, and so anyway, the, the Americans continually helped helped uh, through Eisenhower through uh, through Eisenhower's administration into Kennedy's administration, back ZM, and they saw all the horrible things that ZM was doing to his people, and they were like, "You need to put in democratic reforms," and at every point, ZM was like, "Well, I can't do it when when things are unstable here." I need more money, I need more troops, I need more supplies, I need more, all this kind of stuff. And so the Americans didn't know what to do and didn't want to back out because then they'd look like Chamberlain and Munich. 
you know, it's, a, it's like basically appeasing, appeasing the communists or whatever, just not, 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 follow not being strong. Yeah. And there's a lot about manhood and stuff like that that's all tied I into understand. that. I'm so, actually surprised there's not a giant penis on the American flag. <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. It's America. Um, anyway, so Kennedy tries throughout, throughout his, his presidency to trying to understand what's going on and stuff like that. And uh, eventually, when you have the Buddhist burning himself in the middle of Saigon, the guy who immolated himself, the, the Buddhist monk, who uh, you know got in the middle of the street in Saigon, poured gasoline over him and set himself on fire, you know, and the whole all the international media is all taking pictures of all this stuff, Kennedy came to the conclusion that ZM should be out. So he basically gave word to the generals in South Vietnam that if they fomented a coup against them, that they, the Americans weren't going to stand in the way of that. So America chose the prop uh, created South Vietnam, chose their leader when the leader did things that didn't like them, help facilitate getting facilitated a coup. And when the coup occurred, uh, you know, they didn't do anything to stop it. And eventually, and of course, there, there was all these assurances that ZM would be saved and he would just go into exile. But then, you know, when the coups happened, ZM and his brother were, were shot were shot in uh, the back of a Just can't rely on coolers. Yeah, well, what was interesting is is when Kennedy got the word, his face turned white. He didn't expect this to happen. <clears throat> and I don't understand how, you know, because like, I was just saying, I've never seen him this shocked. It's like, okay, it's like... Yeah, Kennedy's all. They always, they always. The, the what's funny about Kennedy is they always talk about Kennedy saying, "Okay, yeah, oh, he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have got us into into Vietnam." There were a thousand thousand American advisors in Vietnam when he was elected. There were sixteen thousand when he was assassinated. Would he have escalated it as much as Johnson did? Who knows? But he wasn't backing out. Anyway, so you have Johnson coming in, who who's a, basically a domestic politician. He didn't know a whole lot about foreign policy, and so he was just following what, Ken, what the Kennedy advisors, McNamara, and some of the others were doing. And I've heard a lot of conversations, the phone conversations uh, at the at the Johnson Presidential Library between him and advisors. And he was like, you know, I in, as early as 1964, he was saying, I have no idea how we're going to. I don't. I don't really think we're going to win this thing. But this we Johnson. Need, yeah, but we need to do something. To maintain, he's you know, like crapping his pants. Oh yeah, he, he he just inherited this horrible situation, but he was like one of those guys. He, he one of those guys. He didn't want to be Chamberlain at Munich. He didn't want to be thought of as an unmanly kind of man. He didn't want to be thought of as the first person to the first president to lose a war and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, he wanted. He had this very uh, ambitious domestic agenda. The whole Great Society programs. He knew that if he went all in on Vietnam, that he wouldn't be able to get the Great Society programs. So he did it incrementally. So he started, and every time there was, and of course the whole Gulf of Tonkin incident, half of which was kind of, they didn't even know, that actually probably didn't happen. He used that as a pretext to bring, to sign this Gulf of Tonkin resolution, basically saying that America, that the Congress, he brought through Congress, basically saying that America... Uh, uh, the Congress gave the president permission to go in and do whatever he needed to do 
And so, really quick, explain Gulf of Tonkin. Gulf of Tonkin resolution. Yeah. Well, first of all, Gulf of Tonkin incident. You have you have American ships basically spying on North Vietnam. They were in North Vietnamese waters. That's not what they said at the time. They said they were in international waters. They weren't. It was all part of this plan that they were in North Vietnamese waters, help, trying to help out the South Vietnamese. So. You had two uh, two American ships. There was one kind of confirmed attack between American an American ship and some some North Vietnamese gunboats. N- nobody was hurt or anything like that. Uh, and then there was another attack the next day or the day afterwards, or at least supposed. But the weather was terrible. It was dark. Radar was all messed up. Probably nothing happened. So. Very, uh, very iffy situation at best. But Johnson was looking for a way to escalate the war, and so without looking like it's a bad without guy. looking like it's a bad guy, and so he looked, he because uh, they couldn't find a way to win this thing, uh, and so you know he was getting all kinds of advice, and so he decided to try to escalate the war, and so what he did was they had this Gulf of Tonkin resolution, basically saying that authorizing the president to use force to uh, stabilize the situation in, in South Vietnam. I, you know, I could go into the specifics, but it really, that's it's basically... And so, you know, he goes on television and said that America has been attacked while they were in, while they were in neutral waters. Or while international so he's lying. Waters. Yeah, he's basically misleading, yeah. misleading people. And the people don't know. And the people don't know. And, of course, the Congress lines up behind him. And William Fulbright, who eventually turned against him, was one of the... One of the big champions of the bill because he was a good friend of LBJ. So, and this this is the thing he regrets for the rest of his life. He basically helps him steer this bill through the Senate because he was a chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. <clears throat> and so this whole thing gets passed very easily. And so gradually you have the increasing troops, you have Rolling Thunder, which is the bombing campaign that goes on in the North and in the South. And, that, and eventually by... 66 into 67, you know, 68, you have about half a million Americans. In Vietnam. In Vietnam. Fighting, fighting the North. Yeah. Fighting not only the North, but the Southern Communists, the Viet Cong. So you have the North Vietnamese Army on one side, shit. helped by the Viet Cong versus the Americans and the South Vietnamese Army. What a shit show. Oh, it was total chaos. Yeah. And... There were only a few advisors that were actually saying to Johnson, we need to rethink this. And he just ignored them. Or he, uh, In fact, the vice president, Humphrey, mentioned something about it, and then he was not let into a lot of the meetings <laughs> for a couple of years. <laughs> you know, because Johnson, you know, he was trying to hold all this together. He was trying to hold Vietnam together. He was trying to hold... The, the 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 domestic policy agenda that he had that that was his, his the, what he called the woman I really loved you know he wanted but in order to do that he had to go slow and he had to kind of mislead on Vietnam kind of yeah <laughs> well yeah mislead well, yeah and you know but you know I say this I, I said this the other day and going to present time again whenever it seems there's about to be an election. Strangely, the terror alert goes to orange. You yeah. know, it's it, these are not coincidences. Mm-hmm. No. It's all a humongous pile of smoke and mirrors. It really, in order to to get their agenda, perception is 
Is... Have you seen Wag the Dog? Yes. That is a fantastic it's movie. It's a great movie. Um, you know, I mean, and there's a lot of that that happens. I'm, I'm not really a conspiracy theorist or anything like that, but you do, there is some very... Uh, uh, compelling evidence? Compelling evidence that when someone, you know, with regards to the terror alerts, that that, that kind of stuff was in George W. Bush's uh, presidency was done a significant amount. Yeah. Whenever there was, whenever there was something that you know. Oh, whenever his ratings went down. Yeah, whenever his ratings there's a terror alert, so he had to be, you know. Yeah. There's always, always has been, have been candidates and 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 office holders on both in the sides. presidency on both sides yeah. who used fear to, you know. Look, that is bring up bottom the line. Fear is. The best manipulative tool. Yeah. Bottom line, certainly isn't love. Sadly, yeah. It's absolutely fear, fear no, and hate, fear, yeah. xenophobia, homophobia, you know, racism, just uh, all of it, the whole thing. Mm, yeah. It's a great, powerful tool of manipulation. Yeah. So, I mean, and that's the that's that you know, it's all that fear, fear, and you know, anti-communism. Uh, the whole the whole uh, Cold War era was was. Yeah, there were some significant threats, but the the fear was was ratcheted up significantly, and the fear was used to do all kinds of things. So you said a minute ago that um, we never lost a battle, and yet yeah. we lost a lot of lives. So where were we, where were we losing those lives? We were okay. well the way the way that the, the war was fought. They didn't know, you know, the 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 Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese Army would never really have these pitched battles. They would have these little hit-and-run things. They'd find out where the Americans were, they'd do these little raids, they'd, then they'd disappear back into the jungle. So they weren't... They tried to... Want, they wanted to try to engage the uh, enemy, or the Americans did, wanted to try to engage the enemy in these kind of pitched battles, kind of more of a conventional type of war. But the... North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong wouldn't do that. They wouldn't play fair. Yeah, yeah, they would. <laughs> but, you know, so what the strategy became was search and destroy. So As Agent you, Orange? You try, well, that's part of it, to, to clear away the jungles. But you, you try to find the enemy, you kill as many of them, you kill as many of them as you can, and if you have killed more than they've killed of you, then you're winning the war. So you have the Americans going through, you know, like in platoon, like you've seen, going through these little villages and stuff like that, trying to ferret out where the Viet Cong were, where the, where the NBA was. Not unlike Afghanistan. Yeah. Like trying, to find, trying to find these people. And of course, you have these 18, 19, 20-year-old kids uh, coming in after just a basic, a small amount of training, coming in for a year, going in, not speaking, you know, Vietnamese and all that kind of stuff, and and, and scared out of their wits. Scared out of their wits. You have these people coming in trying to interrogate, uh, interrogate members of these little hamlets and stuff like that. So a significant and a significant number of the people who were trying to do this didn't speak Vietnamese. So you have all this kind of stuff. So you have. Americans, Americans going in and doing all that kind of stuff, and eventually, a number of American troops dying from booby traps, from sniper fire, from all kinds of other things. 
when there was always a, when the, it, like say in the Tet Offensive when the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong attacked in a hundred places by a couple of weeks they were devastated the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong were devastated every time that the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong actually decided okay we're going to take it to them this pitch battle they lost but America would lose a few here, a few there, in these little hamlets and these little villages. And so there was a lot of people dying, way more Vietnamese dying, both North and South. Um, so you have that many loss, loss of life. I mean, we lost 58,000 58, people over, over, say, between 64 and 73. Do you know the numbers for Afghanistan? I don't know. Um, but, but basically the Vietnamese lost half a million or even even the, the numbers and continued to lose because of Agent Orange yeah. and so did we though right the, the yeah, cancer that's and, true yeah. so what you, what you have is yeah Americans lost a lot of lives and a lot of it was because of the way they fought the war and also it was because these guys were just stuck in the middle you know um, which guys the, the American troops yeah. they were stuck they were they were well, yeah, I mean, in it, a terribly confused situation. Yes, literally fighting on every single angle. Yeah. And you also have the way they the way they did the enlistments was you 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 serve for a year and then you're out. If you lived that long. Yeah, if you lived that long. But then think of that in terms of actually having an experienced military force. Well, yeah. Once you I get mean, experienced and sure. you actually make it through, you're gone. Yeah. And the new groups come in. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. The, the the officers often stay the same. They sure. are, the, the, the the lifers and stuff like that. So it's 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 not really an efficient way to to, to run a war. You need you need these soldiers who actually yeah. have done it. You know. Um, and so from so many different angles, it was just a debacle. Yeah. But well, it's interesting because now I've had I have friends who are military and. They, they actually have people that know, they can kind of see the winds blowing. They're like, okay, we're going to need you to study <clears throat> North Korean. And then they take them and, you know, they get immersed in the language for wherever the conflict's going to be right. in a couple of years. Right. They have that kind of foresight. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now. Now. <laughs> yeah, now. At least they learned a couple things. You know? Well, you know, it's, it's the funny part about it is... is, is when I teach this stuff, you know, when you look at it, you you think of the leaders, and you and and and. But the emphasis I, I have to make is that these people, these leaders, weren't stupid. They were maybe willfully ignorant of certain things. I mean, the State Department was coming up with all kinds of reports on on before America got involved in Vietnam on on the history of Vietnam, on what was going on, on their their penchant for kicking out the foreigner. Uh, about their patience, and their patience in doing so, and building up forces very slowly, and eventually doing all that kind of stuff. And it was just willfully ignored because it was part. It, it didn't fit into the ego of war. The ego of war, yeah. but also their whole framework about communism. Sure. You know, it's it's easier to to put certain situations in a box rather than to. Re- Rather than reading more and understanding actually what the individuals are talking about, yeah, and there's also a racism going on as well. You know, you, you, you American, yeah, surprise. You know, uh, you know, Johnson saying we're in, we're here to help these little people, you know, uh, and stuff like that. So there, there is that. That's yeah. what I like to call subtle racism. Yes. <laughs> 
Yeah. It was subtle for 1967 or something like that. Yeah, we're here to help you little people. So how did we, uh, how did the tides turn? Okay. You have the Tet Offensive. Okay. For years, uh, particularly the Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, was the architect of a significant amount of the military strategy. Uh, William Westmoreland, the, the general who was in charge of all the forces, American forces, had always been painting these bright pictures of what was going on in Vietnam. We can see the light at the end of the tunnel. We have the enemy on the run. All these kinds of things. Meanwhile, there's protests. Yeah, meanwhile, the protests are starting to mount up. And even actually, McNamara, by 1967, was broken. He, he, he couldn't... He, he nearly had a nervous breakdown. He eventually gave somebody, they gave somebody else the job. He, they gave him another job. He was head of the World Bank, and they put in Clark, Clark Clifford. But the point about it is, by early 1968, uh, you know, it, it, it had been suggested that America was it, that it was getting close. America was winning, going to be winning the war. Every, 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 you know, it's hard to think about it now, but the, and you, so you have the protests going up and all that kind of stuff in late 67. And then all of a sudden, in, in uh, February, oh, in the, during the Lunar New Year, the Tet, the Tet New Year, one of the biggest, the, the biggest holiday in uh, Vietnam, you have the, v, the VC and the NBA uh, attacking in a hundred different places, including the American embassy in, in Saigon. Now, um, so you have to think of all of that, all of that stuff that all the administration said that we're winning and all this kind of stuff. And even though there was a, lots of doubts that, that you know, and this television reporting Vietnam every day, but basically the leader saying we're winning. But then you have the Tet Offensive where they're attacking in 100 places. Then you have American cameras like the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite reporting on the scene that the Americans for a little while, at least for a few hours, at least didn't have control of the American embassy in Saigon, which is kind of the symbol of America in, that, in, in the country. So you have, even though two, you know, a week or two later, every single one of these attacks were beat back significantly. You have now a change in perception of the American people. They're like, oh, wait a minute. You know, I thought we were winning this thing. You know. Thanks, Walter Cronkite. Yeah, he was actually <laughs> came in and, and... Thank God. He didn't, you know, so so you have... That was before media was owned by the politicians. Right. Well, you, you, it's an oversimplification, but basically saying... When, when, when Cronkite actually came in and said, said, this is a stalemate, you know, so either, we, you know, we need to figure out a way to get wit out of here, you know, Johnson realized, look, I've lost most of the country because Cronkite's the most trusted, trusted yeah. journalist in America. Mm -hmm. So anyway, you had that going on, and so that began the process of what was called Vietnamization. Johnson decided, Johnson decided, okay, look, uh, you know, he, I'm not going to, I'm not going to run for re-election. I'm going to concentrate on giving the fight back to the Vietnamese and taking American troops out. He didn't start. He didn't start wholesale doing it, but he, he said he was going to try to do this, and that's all try to negotiate a peace. Had Fulbright already said you're in, you're wrong? Had he already turned? He, uh, on Fulbright him? was holding Vietnam Vietnam hearings in 1966. So he had already begun. He had, oh, yeah. yeah. He they, was, those two never spoke. He talked. was trying to scream from the rooftops. Yeah. And, those, yeah. two, those two never spoke again uh, after that, and after 1966, for the most part. Uh, he started, Johnson started calling him Senator Halfbright instead of Senator Fulbright. 
Um, Clever. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so so you have. That's so seventh grade. I know. It's um, <laughs> quick as the, it was probably the easiest thing to think of. Uh, anyway, so you have the, after that, from sixty eight through seventy three, you have because when 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 Nixon came in, although he had his own problems, it was Nixon, but but his kind of idea was to very slowly de-escalate the war, taking more 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 and more American troops out while trying to train the South Vietnamese. Like we did in Iraq. Yeah. Basically take take taking more more and more troops out, but also bombing the crap out of everybody. In, and in the bombing process. the crap out of Cambodia and, and areas like that as well. Because they were staging areas for the Ho Chi Minh Trail for the North Vietnamese coming to the South. So you have eventually very few troops in the in the seventy one a few a lot fewer troops in seventy one seventy two and eventually I'm taking more and more people home and eventually as they're negotiating the peace which ha- happens in say January of nineteen seventy three but that's when you have the significant increase in the amount of protests that were going on you have Kent State in nineteen seventy you have all these other other uh, things going on and that damaged significantly Nixon's presidency so much that he started saying we need to find out about our enemies and we need to start wiretapping places. So he once again went, oh crap, I better get to that fear thing again. Yeah. Well, yeah. No, he was he was the one in the 69 was saying, and this is this, this, this so much parallels to today because like in 69 because there was all these protests against him he made this big speech calling upon the great silent majority. Basically, all the people that don't usually speak out, all the people from the flyover states, well, that we call them now, that, that don't usually speak out. I want, you, I want to hear your voices from the great silent majority. You know, I'm, you know, against the, only Americans can embarrass, you know, nobody else can embarrass Americans, only we can do that, as we said. So basically, calling upon... You know, you're real Americans, as, they, as, as Sarah Palin might say. Um, and it, it worked significantly because you have this lots, lots of people saying they're going to support the president. Of course, that deteriorated as things got worse. But, and this is the same thing that Trump is doing now. You know, I don't even know if he used silent majority, but he basically says, I, you know, I, I, I am working for you. Let me, let me help. And he's basically talking about a certain group of usually older uh, significantly as far as demographically you know uh, white white not significantly educated but basically those people that seem to see, feel that they are not their issues are not yet disenfranchised yeah, their sure. issues aren't being addressed right so there's lots of parallels between Nixon and Trump you know paranoid uh, thin-skinned, you know, um, authoritarian. Yeah. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of that. Anyway, that's that's. It's also fascinating. Wait, so you teach at? Well, uh, LSU at the moment, Louisiana State University. Louisiana State. Yeah. Okay. I would say go team person, but I don't know what the football mascot is. <laughs> Tigers is. Go Tigers! There we go. <laughs> <laughs> See, I find it's 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 really a shame when I was in ninth grade and had to take civics and all that kind of stuff. I could care less. Of course then. Not. Yeah. But now, you know, as I grew up and I realized that the world didn't revolve around me. Yeah. Um, 
which I think happens around 20-something. Or maybe, I don't know. Well, I think know, it changes. In this town, it never happens. <laughs> yeah, we got a lot of musicians here. The world does revolve around me. <laughs> Who's that Galileo guy? <laughs> I love that band, the Galileos. <laughs> anyway, um, it's I, I find history fascinating. My, my biggest thing is I wish more people um, would read about our past because it's also our present. And I think that yeah. there's such a... There's such this weird division of, oh, that happened then, and that's <clears throat> never going to happen again. Yeah. And it, it happens over and over again. It never doesn't happen. One of the best quotes from a historian is, got a, is, a, is a guy named Howard Zinn. Uh, he basically said, if you do not read history, then basically the current politicians can can will get away with anything and, and everything. Yeah. Because then you won't know that there was a precedent of this happening. You know, uh, it's so interesting because uh, um, Trump, once again, was talking about, you know, it's, this gonna, it's not going to be an internationalist thing. The, the, his administration is not going to be an internationalist administration. It's going to be an Americanist administration. We're going to deal with America first. And him saying as if he created this, Right before World War II, there was a fight between the internationalists and the isolationists, you know, because they didn't want America to get involved in World War II. There was a committee called the America First Committee, you know. People don't know this stuff, and and, and they to- totally downplayed the Nazis and everything like that, and basically saying, if Germany wins, it's not going to hurt, it's not going to hurt us. You know, uh, basically thinking that we, because we are so far away from all these other places, that these other places don't matter. Right. That is a, a sad thing. Americans have a have a real um, egocentric mentality, oh, yeah. which is a and shame. It's, yeah, and, and the point about it is, you know, I understand that you know everybody's proud of where they're from. Sure. And that's 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 things that Americans don't understand. You know, because the, uh, and and it happened back in Vietnam too. What 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 the leaders back in Vietnam here assumed was that the people in South Vietnam wanted to be just like Americans. You know, and, and so they came in with that that attitude and yeah. were surprised. Yeah. When when it wasn't that way. It is oh. a sh- the whole us and them mentality in general. When it and again, this is why I want to talk about stuff like this because. We at the bottom line is we are human beings. We right. are of the human kind, and it's so easy to like. Oh, that guy wears a green shirt, and I wear a blue shirt, right. so he's wrong. I'm right, yeah. and that's the most simplified way to put it. But on a global scale, again, how we started this podcast, and I said, why do we care? I understand we didn't want Russia to drop bombs on us. Yeah, I get that, but. Why do we care what someone else's policy or religion or whatever is? Unless, of course, they're hurting mass mass right. people. I do believe that we, we as human beings, forget the America thing. I think human beings uh, should go in and help the underdog. Right. Politics aside, there shouldn't be human trafficking. There shouldn't be mass genocide. Right. You know, that's not okay. Right. I, I definitely stand for that. But I don't... I'm not really behind... The whole thing that that we should get to dictate how another person chooses to worship or love or you right. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. and that's an oversimplification. But no, I, I, I totally get I totally get where you're at. And 
it's just interesting because it would be interesting to me to my to my mind is if you strip away those people who are the loudest voices mm-hmm. because once you strip away the people that are the loudest voices there's a whole lot more tolerance than that than, I agree with you, you. Know, because because you have the voices particularly on the on the right but it's not just them um who are basically saying that you know America is a Christian nation? America is this or that, and all that kind of stuff. And and you know, so trying to divide as as a instead of actually having everyone come together. And most people, I mean, though, if we listen to all of those, if the Supreme Court listened to all those voices, then you wouldn't have gay marriage. Now you have gay marriage, and you have all these people yelling, but everybody is like, "What are you yelling about? Who you know? Right? It's not going on with you." Well, you know? I will. You know, that's one thing over life that I have realized is the people that are yelling the, the loudest are the most offensive and probably deep down know their argument isn't a sound one. Right. Otherwise, they wouldn't need to yell. They could yeah. have an actual discourse. Right. An intellectual... Not, you know, I'm not saying right. smart necessarily, but like, you know, just a, a conversation. Yeah. There's no need to scream. Right. <laughs> and yeah. who's, like you said, the, you know, the, the infomercial, the... the Democrats are about to start their infomercial, and who's to say they're not going to be just as full of lunacy as? Oh, they're going to be. They're just they're, they're lunatic on a different. You know, yeah. they they lunacy over one thing, and the Republicans lunacy over another, and it's just it's maddening. It's, yeah, it usually, I mean, it is. There is a lot of wisdom in the fact that you basically the truth lies somewhere near the middle. Yeah. I mean, it's not. You know, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's just one way. You know, sometimes. Yeah. You know, it's it's significantly one answer over another. But there there is a lot of people that live either center center right, center left, middle. Some somewhere most people live most most people politically, socially, whatever are in this middle, this yeah. kind of live and let live thing. But you yeah. have the people screaming on either side, mm-hmm. and it's really hard to ha- let your voice be heard. But my concern is the people in the middle are so overwhelmed by the screaming that they're not going to show up on election day. Yeah. I think, I think because I I think this time it's not necessarily because of that. I think this time, because it's a situation where you have two candidates who are hated so much. They are. And, even the people that are going to be voting for Hillary don't particularly care for her all that much. Well, I, I say that all the time. I said, look, I, as a human being, I'm not a big fan. Yeah. But I think for the job... Yeah, yeah, yeah. If she were a man... Here's the other thing. I mean, I hate to pull the female card, but if she were... A lot of the rhetoric I read online, it's like, woman this, woman that. I think it's, it's just like with uh, President Obama. Black, black, black. Oh, yeah. You, know, this is, you, you wouldn't have a problem of her, you know ordering strikes if she had a penis. Right, right. It would be just a normal day in politics for yeah. somebody of that. There's very much, there's a lot I know, You know, I mean, she was not the first person in the history of American politics to order that sort of, you know. Yeah. She I won't think, be the last. I think that's, I think that's a part of it. I think there's, cer- there's certain people that would not vote for a female, and I understand that. But if that female was somebody like, Elizabeth Dole or Sarah Palin, they probably would. Yeah, you I know. know. So it's, it's bizarre. It, you know, um, so it's, it is partly gender, and, and I, I, that's, that's obvious. I, I think the, the people that vote based on the rhetoric that's around them, is, is, 
instead of, of going pe- yeah. of people that were aiming it. But I mean, it's just it, that's the way the system is. You know, know, people. Well, Brexit is a great example of that. Yeah. They yeah. people didn't know what they were voting they for. They no just idea. voted. And I read an article about Google saying the next day the the search engines were off yes. the charts for what it was. Right. They so basically, know. they voted, and then they went and tried to figure out what it was right. when they realized their vote created this havoc. Right. Yes. Right. I mean that. Yeah. I mean that is kind of the, the getting back to the whole point of having a, an informed electorate. Um, there's certain, you know. The founding they, fathers they, are just getting drunk as shit right now and going, <laughs> "What has happened?" They're, they're having rolling in grave contests. <laughs> yeah. No. You're right. Oop, you're right. Um, it's significantly difficult I mean you know but the, what's interesting is is stuff like the the, the play Hamilton yeah it, it it just even even peripherally deals with say the election of 1800 when they were talking about all the all this crap on either side I mean it's always been I know oh it's I always know. been yeah. and it's always been you know so it's always been the, the 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 mud being thrown on either sure. side. It's just getting more. It's because we have twenty four seven everything. Oh, I know, I you know. know. It's because all, everything is accessible, you know. And politicians have always preyed on the people who are most easily lemminged out. You know, they yeah. uh, the ones that won't go research the facts, the ones that won't. They just spoon feed them information. Yeah. They eat it, and then they start spewing it out because. It's so much easier than yeah. to think for oneself. And I have to remember, when I start getting frustrated by it, I have to remember that we're really, we're young. We're a young yeah. uh, country. Yeah. We're a young species, you know. And I just, you know, waiting for that day when Will Smith comes on the TV and says, I'm here to talk about the alien invasion. <laughs> <laughs> and then suddenly the world will be unified. It's funny, is it? Is it? British comedian Bill Bailey, and he, t- he he says, "I am a relaxed empiricist." He said, "Okay, I'll tell you what it means." He said, "He basically said, you know, an empiricist is somebody who wants to know the truth, who wants to get to get to the. This is his definition: wants to get get to the truth of things. Because I'm a relaxed empiricist in that you certainly want the truth, but I'm just going to basically believe somebody if somebody I really know tells me what it is. I'll, I'm not going to look it up." <laughs> Yes, exactly. And we have a nation of relaxed empiricists. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, some aren't even that concerned about the truth, let's yeah, be honest. Yeah. I mean, well, you choose the own truth that you, you sure. know, because yeah. because basically if the if the actual truth goes against your thoughts or the way you've thought all the time, right. then you reject it. Yes. You can talk about that with regards to science. Yeah. You can talk about that with regards to race or anything Religion, else. Religion, anything. You know, so it's like basically if it if if it goes against your beliefs, uh, then you reject it, even though there is irrefutable evidence. I actually enjoy talking to people that don't have the same belief system as me yeah. because I learn a lot, first of all, and it's generally a pretty good conversation because the people tend to not scream, which I enjoy, the not yeah. screaming people. Um, and I think it's important to know what the opposite thought thinks. Yeah. You know? And who knows? Maybe the opposite thought from me might say something, and I'll, I'll go think about it myself for a while and decide that that thought was actually 
a pretty good thought. Yeah. Growth, think, there's nothing wrong with growth. I don't know why people wrong. are so People are very set. scared. People are very scared. Yeah. And, and you see, it's easier, I mean, as you know, it's easier to, to think of something like, okay, you know, why, why, is, why is my situation not, not great right now? Um, you know, it's their I, fault. I, I remember <laughs> it's their fault, but I remember my mom and dad's situation was fantastic, and I'm and I'm struggling here. So why don't we do something to get back to there to make America great again? The whole point about it is that the the Daily Show did a great great thing when they interviewed people from the Republican convention, and they asked them, and this is what they should ask Trump right now: When was America great? And some of them are saying, oh, well, it was great in 1776 when we decided that we were going to fight or, or when we created a new government and all that kind of stuff. And, and then the person interviews like, oh, except for slavery. Oh, wait, except for slavery. Oh, except for this or except for that. Sure. Because in every situation, you, you know, in every era, there was a situation where people weren't all feeling so great or weren't having it so great. And if you go anywhere before... Say 1970, you have, for African Americans, you have significantly difficult situations. Absolutely. I, I did a podcast with Ruby Amanfu, and, and, who's African American. Literally, she's from Ghana. And okay. she's now, you know, she's okay. become a citizen. Um, anyway, uh, we were talking about when was, you know, the ideal time that everyone keeps talking about. And I said, well, I think for white people, I think it's the 50s. Yeah. But certainly not for anyone of color, certainly not for, yeah. I mean, you know, we had Japanese internment camps in America. Right. We have had a problem with, you know, the, the housewives that were supposed to be all smiles, taking right. pills like they were going out of style. You know, we had corruption in politics. We had, I mean, it's, when, yeah. it, when has it ever been? And, and that's not to be such a Debbie no. Downer, but it's it's, it's just, that's it's reality. And to use that as a manipulative tool. Well, it, it's, it's, what he's saying is not so far removed from, say, George Wallace in the early 70s, 60s, and stuff like that. Segregationist, Governor of Alabama, ran for president in 68. Got 19% of the vote. Uh, yeah. Uh, basically, that seems from the, real high. From the America, par- America Party. The America Party. I mean, he, 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 he was basically saying, you know, let's, let's, and Reagan, too. Reagan was talking about, you know, uh, Basically, going back to having a people proud of America again instead of hostages in Iraq and people saying that America wasn't strong anymore. You know, like going back to the time when America was strong. I even remember during a debate between Jimmy Carter and, and, and Reagan, basically, Reagan talking, they were talking about race somewhere, and he goes, Well, you know, um, it was diff- different back in the 50s when there wasn't a race problem. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> Terrifying. When there wasn't a race problem. And it's like, Are you well, there me? wasn't a race problem for you because they were just serving you drinks yes, on, on the exactly, golf course. Exactly. You know, or, or whatever. So, so yeah. make America great again is also, is so much of a code for, let's make America white again. White again. Yeah. Or let's make America great again so that, you know, white people can get more than the, the perceived number of, of minorities that are just going for the public money, that kind of thing. This is it, there's all this kind of. I know. It's the all tied up into insane. that. It's yeah. all, it's all very much tied into that, and that's that's going to be the problem for Trump because I can say in places like 
Pennsylvania, he has zero percent of the of the African American vote. And I would think that you would need at least some percentage of the African American vote to win that state. And he probably has a small percentage of Hispanic vote as well. So yeah. it's just like it's going to be close. But without those two demographics, that's that's the that's the problem. With the Republican Party. I mean, the Republican Party is is seemingly on the death death throes right now. I know it you know? is. And what is I read some comedian on Twitter said uh, they felt like uh, America is about to jump the shark. <laughs> jump the shark. Oh, I love it. I know, so funny. I mean, no, it, it's. I uh, mean, I could talk about this stuff yeah. forever and ever. I think it's so fascinating. Um, I see that at the end of every podcast. It seems like the, the listeners are probably like, enough already. <laughs> Wait, what would be a great book that you could recommend for um, people who want to know more about the, this time frame and maybe even how it correlates to now? Maybe a couple books that well that wouldn't be highbrow, you know? Yeah, like yeah, yeah. The, if you want just a, your basic history, and it's really, really well done, and it's and it's uh, two or three hundred pages or something like that. Uh, George Herring's America's Longest War is 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 kind of the it's the textbook, but it's very readable, and it's mm-hmm. something that you can you can you can get, and and it, it goes chronologically, and you can find it. But one of the best books, and I don't remember the author's name, but there's a, it, there's a, a it's a big book, but it's not a book that you have to read all of it. You can read little bits of it. It's called Patriots. Patriots. Yeah, we could Google it. I'll yeah. look it up and put it on my website. Yeah, and uh, it's it's. A huge oral history of, of Vietnam. Mm. So you have anywhere from it's a written oral history, or is he talking? <laughs> no, he's not talking. Um, it's a tape. It's it's basically he he, he interviewed thousands oh, wow. of people from political leaders, you know, uh, to people in the military. You know, everywhere, like like not only the the, the VC, the NBA, the, the generals, the the Americans, people who were still suffering from effects of PTSD and all this kind of stuff, uh, protesters. They even interviewed uh, one of the former Playboy bunnies who went on one of the USO tours with Bob Hope. I mean, it's it's like it's the and John McCain and various and sundry others, but they, they it's a big it's it's a big book, but it's one of those things you read a few of them and you get a flavor of what mm-hmm. it was like. Was the bunnies people. interview over two pages with a staple in the middle? <laughs> I just read the article. Out I just... <laughs> <laughs> yes. I don't know anything about it. Uh, <laughs> but no, it, it's 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 um, <laughs> it's it to me it is the best uh, book on if you really want to get to you know beyond the story because you can always read a chronology of what was going on to get into the heads to of get everyone. into the heads of everyone yeah, that was doing which it which I think is brilliant and you have once again you know it's one of those things that you can you don't have to sit there and read it all in one sitting you can read a few of these little oral histories and it'll give you a little flavor and if, as you go along you get a, a fuller picture of what of what it was like for those people that were there and yeah I think that's that's a and I think that what was interesting is I think 
the the author is Scandinavian. He's not American. He's not Vietnamese. Sure, sure. So he kind of comes at it from a neutral angle, neutral angle which is actually pretty cool, pretty good. Awesome. All yeah. right. I'll I'll post those on the yeah. Human website. Thank you, Mark, for no being problem. here. Thank you, Susan. Um, and uh, by the way, Mark is also a musician. <laughs> uh, do you have a website for that too? Uh, a performing professor. How cool is yeah. that? Well, a lot of the demos that I have are on uh, SoundCloud.com/slash/Mark-Carson. There you go. All right. Thank you so much. No problem. Yay.